Alert Medic 1 respond. You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. Hello and welcome to the Alert Medic One podcast. I'm Ken Sanner. And I'm Mustafa Sadiq. Thank you for joining us today. We are recording via Skype, so I'm sure you guys will be able to tell a little bit, but we're working on editing a lot of that uh, the static out. Uh, thank you for joining us today. We're going to be continuing uh, from our last episode, our conversation on vital signs and diagnostics uh, with a discussion on SpO2 and uh, waveform capnography. Yeah, and I think these are great tools. SpO2, pulse oximetry, a lot of times get lumped into the vital signs discussion. And it depends who you talk to, whether or not it's truly a vital sign. But regardless, it is definitely a valuable tool for us. The same with waveform capnography, not really a vital sign, but definitely a vital thing that we can measure and monitor. It provides a whole lot of information for us. And that's where most of our discussion today is really going to be. Yeah, you want to get started with SPO2? Yeah, so let's start with SPO2. So pulse oximetry is a great tool for us. It measures the amount of hemoglobin that is saturated with something. So when we look at that, it's important to remember that it may not necessarily be associated with oxygenation. It just means something's attached to the hemoglobin. And we'll talk about carbon monoxide here in a moment. But when we look at a normal SpO2, we're looking at a range anywhere from 94 so we really don't want to see more than 99% in a lot of circumstances. Uh, we can talk about the dangers of hyperoxygenating a patient, especially if they have a CVA or an MI, because too much oxygen can cause vasoconstriction. So if we have a situation where we have decreased cerebral blood flow or decreased coronary blood flow, too much oxygen can actually be a bad thing. But we can get into that a little more detail in a minute. So with an SpO2, we need to remember that, as I said before, it's measuring something that's associated with the hemoglobin. Now, one of the big dangers here is that CO, carbon monoxide, has a higher affinity for hemoglobin than oxygen does. In fact, about a 200 to 250 times greater affinity. So it is important to remember that you can have someone showing normal SpO2 who has CO poisoning. The other thing with SpO2 is that it is a great tool, but it may not accurately reflect an acutely ill patient's status. You can have somebody with an O2 sat of 92% who's in severe dyspnea or 80% who's got little to no distress. It really depends on the patient. So like all of our tools, it's important to remember that we need to look at the patient in the whole clinical context, the whole clinical picture. Treat the patient, not the monitor. That's what we really want to drive at with SpO2. So when you're looking at that, make an informed decision. You know, if you have somebody who's got one word dyspnea and they're tripoding and they've got accessory muscle use and you get there and their O2 sat's 93%, you should probably be ventilating that patient, providing high flow oxygen. Likewise, if you've got someone with an O2 sat of, you know, 82% and they're sitting there talking to you in complete sentences while they're smoking a cigarette, they probably don't need bag valve mask ventilation. You really just have to look at the whole picture. One of the interesting things with SpO2, and Moose, you'll probably want to touch on this, is known as the oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve. 
essentially, uh, we're looking at the relationship between SaO2, the oxygen saturated in arterial blood, and the SpO2, the amount of hemoglobin saturated uh, with oxygen. And as you have a lower SaO2, SpO2, it's easier to bring that O2 sat up up to a certain point when it actually becomes more difficult as you approach normal levels. Do you want to touch on that at all, Moose? Yeah, so I think I want to start with the like the actual physiology, right? So we all know that we carry oxygen on our blood, but how does that actually happen, right? So hemoglobin is a protein, right? It's a molecule that carries the oxygen in the blood. It's composed of uh, four subunits, each which is has a uh, heme group plus a like, a like a chain, like a globin chain. I, and again, I don't want to go too much into the biochemistry of it, but the key molecule in there is iron. That iron is what helps uh, carry that oxygen. Uh, it can reversibly bind with an oxygen molecule. The key thing, and Ken mentioned it as well, is that can also bind with CO, carbon monoxide, and it has a way higher affinity to it. That's why SpO2 is a good tool, but it's not the end-all be-all. And I really want to stress the point that Ken made about how it's a good tool within the toolbox. Hemoglobin, as we said, it has the four binding sites for oxygen, the iron atoms, right, in the four heme groups. But it also, uh, and it, this can be a very difficult concept to understand, but as I'm sure all of you, especially in paramedic school, went through the concept of the oxygen hemoglobin disassociation curve. And I think this will probably be better explained in a, in a blog article. But when we look at SpO2, it needs to be taken within the clinical picture of the patient. I think that's really the bottom line with it. So a little bit, I'm going to go on a little pedestal here and just kind of start talking. So one of the biggest things I get frustrated with from a QA standpoint is when people just empirically put oxygen on STEMI patients, on stroke patients, just because 30 years ago, that's what we did. Or 20 years ago, that's what we did. You know, everyone spits out the vomit, uh, I guess, pneumonic, you know, vitals, oxygen monitor, IV transport. That is not what we do anymore. We are not these like robotic technicians that just throw oxygen on anybody. I know that National Registry can be, you know, we're not saying National Registry is good or bad, but I know that when it comes to a testing purpose. Everyone's from the EMT level to the paramedic level is trained to just throw 15 liters of oxygen on everybody. That's not how it works in the real world. You know, you walk into a patient who you can hear audible crackles from the doorway and you throw them on, you know, 15 liters and their oxygen saturation is now 99%, but they are still obviously working. You have not fixed that problem. And that's where, you know, of course, we have to work with like uh, getting some uh, positive pressure on board, you know, non-invasive positive pressure. It's similarly, if you walk into a house and the patient says, oh, you know, they're talking to you, they're comfortable and it's the for whatever reason, the oxygen, uh, the uh, pulse ox says they're at 83%. Look at the entire clinical picture. Don't just freak out. And I'll be the first one to say, I, you know, I remember a case that I had where the patient was, you know, in, in mild respiratory distress. It was actually at a dialysis center and I had a very, very uh, veteran EMT with me. And I saw that the person's oxygen saturation was like 88% or something. And I completely freaked out. I like got my blinders on and I said, you know, I need to throw this person on oxygen, you know, high flow oxygen. I honestly don't remember how that call played out, but afterwards I specifically remember the driver, the senior EMT with me saying that, look at the whole picture. If the patient isn't blue, if the patient isn't in active respiratory distress, take that into consideration and don't just get honed into a number. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen both extremes of that play out before. 
where, you know, you walk into a house and the first responders are there and they're looking at the patient and the patient has an O2 sat of 94% and they're, like I said, tripoding, one more dipsy, all that good stuff. And the first responders are like, uh, you know, sat's 94, patient's fine, not a big deal. Likewise, I've seen somebody has chest pain and there are no respiratory distress at all. And you walk in and they're getting blown away on 15 liters and on breather. You know, there is a little bit of a disconnect there. And I think it's changing. I think it's changing slowly. But there is a little bit of a disconnect out there in the real world about how patients should be managed. Ken, if you're cool with it, I'd like to talk a little bit about our uh, like fire ground operations when it comes to not only CO poisoning, but also like cyanide poisoning. We, we don't have to go into cyanide, obviously, but uh, especially CO. Sure. Uh, the reason I want to talk about this is because, uh, you know, I, I heard about a case where it was actually a friend of mine that told me about it, where a firefighter was misdiagnosed. I think we're all used to the random 3 a.m. CO alarm calls, right? Uh, especially if you're dual trained on fireside, um, we show up and you know nine times out of ten it's nothing but sometimes it is right especially when the patient has like a slight headache you know maybe they have kids at home that aren't you know acting right and i think it's intuitive you know sitting here listening to this podcast or you know ken and i are discussing maybe it's intuitive and we're like oh of course we would 100 percent of the time check how the patient's doing but at three in the morning you know it, maybe someone doesn't right and especially from the qa standpoint and that's why it's critical to understand how the patients physiologically present with you know CO poisoning and why that SpO2 is going to be normal, right? And we're going to be sitting there assessing that patient in the back of an ambulance and they're like, and they're not altered. They're just that borderline patient. Like, yeah, I just have a slight headache. I mean, that patient still needs to be uh, transported, right? That's not someone we just, you know, a pencil whip of refusal for that. You know, that's important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's very important to deliver high flow oxygen to patients with CO poisoning, even if they present with an SpO2 that's normal. That hemoglobin is 100% saturated, but a lot of that saturation is carbon monoxide. And one of the special populations that we really worry about with CO poisoning are pregnant patients. Uh, fetal circulation has a higher affinity for CO than uh, normal adult circulation. So even though the mother may be fine, the, the baby may be in grave danger for CO poisoning. So it is important to provide those patients high flow oxygen and uh, in most cases, hyperbaric transport referral. Uh, and real quick, I, I just want to talk about where we're getting this information. So uh, Regulation of Tissue Organization by uh, Pittman RN is a really good uh, uh, textbook that I actually found it on PubMed. So I know sourcing is super important. So I just you know want to cite them real quick so the listeners understand where we're getting our information. Ken, if you want to talk to that real quick. Sure. Most of the information I'm referencing comes from Nancy Caroline's Emergency Care in the Streets, the 8th edition. That's the primary source that I got my information from for this. Cool. Well, I, I think that's a pretty good discussion about SPO2. Uh, I'm, maybe we are missing a couple of things, but we can always return to it. Can you think of anything else, Ken? I don't think I have anything else about SPO2 that I want to talk about at the moment. Yeah, I, I think the big thing is is use it as a tool. Don't let it be your crutch, right? Like there, right. It's, it's a tool in the toolbox. So I'm really excited to talk about ca uh, waveform capnography because this is... Uh, this is a really cool topic, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. Waveform capnography is a great tool in our toolbox. It's a great topic. It's something every paramedic should be familiar with. Um, there are even, from what I understand, some systems where uh, EMTs are using it as well. So it, it's not just 
a paramedic tool. There are applications for it in the EMT world as well. So with waveform capnography, kind of the 10 cent version of it is we're measuring the carbon dioxide exhaled from the patient. Important to remember that carbon dioxide is a byproduct of perfusion of energy use in the body. So this carbon dioxide is delivered to the alveolar capillary beds to be exhaled as a waste product. And it's basically exchanged for oxygen with red blood cells. So that's where we're getting the entitled CO2 from. A normal entitled CO2 is 35 to 45, which matches up great uh, with the normal pH in the body, which is 7.35 to 7.45. And Moose, if you want to maybe go a little more in-depth on that topic there. Absolutely. So uh, I absolutely love physiology and, uh, you know, I'm a student of it. I'm by no means an expert, but I think when it, when it comes to cell respiration and, uh, you know, the cycle, I think it's one of the my favorite topics. So just real quick biochem review, right? The three main steps, right, of the of cell respiration. We have glycolysis that breaks down glucose that we ingest to pyruvic acid. I am terrible at pronouncing that. Then you have the Krebs cycle that uh, transfers chemical energy to the electron transport chain where oxygen, uh, oxidative phosphorylation occurs. And you have that final electron acceptance by the oxygen. We have glucose and oxygen that gets changed to carbon dioxide, water, and AT which is that the energy, uh, the fuel that we use for uh, cellular work. I think when we're thinking about entitled CO2, it's a great marker of perfusion and cell respiration activity at the most basic minimized level. As Ken said, 35 to 45 is the normal range, right? And a lot of times in our COPD patients or chronic bronchoconstriction patients, we'll see a higher number. And, uh, you know, physiologically, if you think about it, the cell respiration is still occurring, right? At the cellular level, those mechanics are still going on. We're still getting the ADP, we're still getting the byproducts, but we're not, we're not able to expel that CO2. And that's why we have that intrinsically high number. On the other hand, uh, and we'll go into this a little bit at a shocky level, you know, right, for various shock reasons, we're not able to get that oxygen via the blood to the cells. So we we're, you're going to have a lower number when it comes to the end title because the actual equation that we just mentioned isn't happening. That perfusion isn't happening. Cellular respiration isn't happening. And our bodies are resorting to anaerobic respiration, which I think that we can talk to at another time where we have that buildup of lactic acid. Ken, anything else on that? Yeah. So I think you bring up a really good point because end title CO2 is a great tool for us to monitor our patient's respiratory status. But it also gives us an indirect look at their perfusion status as well. So it's a, a really good multifaceted tool because you can look to see if your patient's retaining carbon dioxide, but it also lets you look and say, hey, maybe my patient isn't perfusing very well because their end title's 25. Maybe there's an issue there that we need to address. You know, maybe there is a shock state at play, and that's something that's going to present early you know, in the patient's status, you know, you may not have to wait until the patient is, you know, grossly hypotensive to recognize that there's an issue. So it's a very good tool to monitor a tube. It's a gold standard to maintain a tube. If you lose a tube, you'll very quickly lose your waveform. You'll get an apnea alarm after about 30 seconds. And it's a good tool for non-intubated patients as well because it does allow you to see that waveform. If you have that bronchoconstriction pattern, that shark fin, pretty good indication that you're dealing with an asthma or COPD type situation 
Whereas if you have a normal waveform, you know, that's probably not what you're looking at. And, you know, maybe a pulmonary edema or hyperventilation syndrome or, you know, any number of other issues that could cause respiratory distress. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the actual waveform, right? So there's uh, four phases, right? So phase zero is that inspiration phase. And then as we are starting to expire, we transition from phase one to phase two. I think we all hear about like the shark fin, but we don't actually understand what that means, right? So from the transition from phase one is the transition from inspiration to expiration. And the phase two is ramping up. Phase three, is full expiration. If you can understand that concept, you can understand that if there's bronchoconstriction, if there's some sort of blocking of the air going out, there's going to be a smaller slope for that upstroke from phase two to phase three. As we transition from phase three to phase zero, that's where we change from expiration to inspiration. And I think that's another concept that we'll be able to explain a little bit better when uh, in an article, just because it's definitely a visual concept. So uh, one thing to remember when you look at your initial exhalation is in that expiratory upstroke, your initial exhalation doesn't really cause much of a waveform because you have the exhalation of dead space, which is, you know, a couple hundred milliliters of air that is not actually encountering the alveoli at all. It's in your mouth and your trachea, your main stem bronchi. And then as you exhale beyond that, that's when you really start to see the change. That shark fin pattern you were talking about really comes from unequal alveolar emptying, which is uh, pretty unique to asthma COPD. So that's where we really get that waveform from, as you kind of talked about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's so many other, like we can use it in PE, we can of course use it in heart failure, shock, uh, but also metabolic disorders. I think that's something that we don't really utilize enough, you know, situations like DKA, where you might have a... Uh, an end title rating that's less than, you know, 29, right? And really understanding the physiology uh, behind that. What else do you want to talk about, Ken, regarding end title CO2? I think one nice use for it, and I certainly don't use it on all of my patients, but it is a nice way to accurately count the respiratory rate, particularly oh, yes. if you have someone who's really tachypneic, you know, if they're really sick. Um, it can be a useful tool. It can be useful in identifying shock states, as we said a couple times over hypovolemic shock and septic shock is uh, even sepsis in general often presents with a low end tidal CO2. So it's not obviously a definitive diagnostic tool for either of those conditions, but it is a piece of evidence that we can add to our case that that's what we're looking at. Do you want to talk a little bit about head injuries and where we were, where we are with end tidal CO2 monitoring with that, like traumatic brain injuries? Sure. So we want to be careful uh, when we're dealing with our traumatic brain injury patients to maintain an appropriate end-tidal CO2. Usually we want to stay around 30 to 35 to try to cause a little bit of vasoconstriction in the brain to slow down bleeding. You have to be careful with that, though, because if you go too low, you can end up in a situation where the patient actually gets worse. You don't want to cause too much vasoconstriction. It's a very kind of delicate dance there. 
this is something that we're going to be talking to our medical director about in one of our episodes because we actually, during one of our initial planning meetings, we had discussed uh, this topic because the literature is really like conflicting, right? And um, right now, at least, so where Ken and I function, we're for our intubated TBI patients, we want to we're instructed to keep that end title between thirty and thirty five. But when we get with Dr. Wittberg, I think it will be a good topic to talk about where the literature is right now, and also I think that would be a good opportunity to really dive into the physiology of why we're actually doing what we're doing. Right. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. So I think we're good, Ken. What else? Okay. Anything else you want to talk about when it comes to end title? No, I think uh, we, we kind of laid out a nice basic overview of its uses there. Um, I don't want to get too far into the weeds with it. We want to keep this kind of palatable for everybody to listen to. Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you very much for listening in uh, today. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, and subscribe to our podcast. We're on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes as uh, Alert Medic One. And of course, subscribe to our uh, website. All right. Thank you, everybody. And we hope to see you again soon. All right. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. 